Good morning and welcome back to the Morning Briefing. It's Thursday, June 30th, episode 186. July 4th is right around the corner for me. My favorite holiday. I love it far more than Christmas break or any other time of the year. Swimming pools, barbecues, hot summer days, fireworks, America. I love it. I love it. I'm right there with you, Phil. Right there with you. There's, there's not a better holiday for me. And uh, Bert, I'll, I drove my Jeep today, top off, doors off, having a good time. I'm trying to get in the mood. Uh, I just can't wait. Phil, we've we've had this conversation before. You're not supposed to be talking about you going topless on this program. Well, you know, Bert, um, we have to be careful. And, you know, that gets us right into the whole concept that we had some really nice comments following our discussion last week because you and I touch on sometimes touchy things. Sometimes people don't like the position that we're taking, but, you know, we try our best. And for those that made the comment, we try our best to represent the employer's point of view on this show. Um, we take in mind the employees and employee relations and the, in the job that the HR manager has or the business owner has. But when it all boils down to it, we're trying to represent an employer point of view as we're working to help make a great place for you to work and your employees to work and giving you the information you need to more effectively run your business. That's the idea. So for those of you that make comments, thanks for doing that. Bert, that gets I, will, us- I, I, I will say, though, Phil, that the comments that came in were uh, overwhelmingly how much how appreciative people were of the balanced approach that we took, uh, sort of presenting both sides of the argument. And, and, and not one suggesting that we had a microaggression in any of our comments, which would be easy to do, which is today's topic. Uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to go there yet, Bert. I want to talk a little bit about Roe versus Wade. It is the conversation uh, that I'm having with most employers today, even if it's just you know, should I be doing something? So I'd like to get some perspective on you. It's the biggest news, no doubt, in the media today. And I'd like to get some perspective of you know what what are what's your firm doing. Uh, what's the position for employers to consider on this? I know that there's a lot of organizations just announcing we're going to pay for our employees to travel wherever they need to travel uh, to get uh, an abortion should they choose they want to exercise those rights in a state where it will be legal. So I'm going to pass it to you. I'm going to let you start where you want to start. We'll go from there. Sure. I, it, it's kind of interesting because you you know they they say at a dinner party or in a public setting. You know, if you want to stay away from controversy, never, ever, ever talk about politics or religion. And uh, I think on a day that we're handling microaggressions, that we're wading into the topic of abortion, uh, really puts us right there that we're talking about uh, really the collision of politics, religion, uh, uh, rights. uh, I mean, all all of the above. So uh, it's 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 really kind of uh, an an interesting topic. And yes, it is a collision point. Yes. It is. Yeah. And, and, and maybe maybe about the the greatest collision point uh, in this country. Uh, and, and, this one and it's a no win discussion. Yeah. It's a no win discussion many times. I mean, even within families, I know yeah. it's a tough discussion. So let, let's you and I try and navigate that discussion yeah. without being offensive to anyone and, and, and say, look, we're taking the employer point of view here. These are things we need to be aware of. Yeah. So the two biggest areas right now that employers are contending with have really to do uh, with leaves of absence and benefits. And of course, everybody is aware 
that the Supreme Court last week on June 24th issued its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which did fundamentally change abortion laws in the United States. Following Dobbs, there's no longer a federal constitutionally protected right to abort a pregnancy. So without a federal constitutional right, individual states are now free to decide how to regulate or restrict abortion services. Again, I want to make it very clear. Abortion in this country is not illegal per se. Uh, what it is, is it's been returned to the states for the states to decide whether abortion is legal or illegal. They, in their what, state. In their state. And what so what the court did was it took away the federal right to an abortion, but it has left uh, in place the, uh, the, the very po distinct possibility that a state will either outlaw abortion, restrict abortion, or place no restrictions on abortion. So it's going to be a state-by-state -state issue. Right now, it's unclear whether states may completely prohibit abortion services where continuation of the pregnancy threatens the life of the mother. But we did see several states taking almost immediate action. In fact, our, our state of Missouri here took action within one hour of the Supreme Court's decision uh, to outlaw abortions in, in most circumstances. And then, of course, it gets even more complicated because you have the prosecuting attorney in the city of St. or in the uh, county of St. Louis coming out saying that, uh, it, well, not just in the county of St. Louis, but elsewhere around the country saying that they will not prosecute offenses for abortion related crimes. So uh, the, the it, you know, the, the discontent and the lawlessness in this country, you know, when you have laws and the prosecutors don't enforce them, they're, they're taking the, uh, their, their enforcement uh, requirement and now they're they're legislating. These are really issues that are supposed to be dealt with by the people, and the people are supposed to talk through their legislators. From a legal standpoint, purely from a legal standpoint, I'm not commenting one way or another on abortion. I don't like any of this because, uh, again, laws that are passed should be enforced. And if people don't like those laws, they should advocate through their elected representatives to change those laws. It should not be up to a prosecuting attorney to decide to enforce or not enforce. That's my political stance on it without commenting on abortion one way or the other. Uh, but the, the, uh, some of the other issues related to Dobbs is Dobbs takes effect immediately. And like I said, that practical impact is going to vary state by state. Uh, some states have retained pre-Roe versus Wade abortion laws, which may again take effect. Uh, many states had what are called trigger laws that took effect either immediately or within a uh, stated time frame after the Dobbs decision or upon some action, such as certification by the state's attorney general. Of course, other states are expected to pass new laws restricting abortion, while others are expected to strengthen protections for abortion. The state level responses and guidance are obviously rapidly evolving and uh, you know we'll we'll try to bring you some more news on that. So turning to some of the employer questions uh, that we're seeing, first of all, does Dobbs prohibit an employer sponsored health plan from covering abortion services? And the answer to that is no. Dobbs neither prohibits plans from covering abortion services 
nor requires them to do so. So we may start to see uh, some uh, plans either providing for abortion services or excluding abortion, abortion services. I would tend to doubt that you will see an exclusion uh, of abortion services. Well, that's, you know, that will be an interesting position because in watching the evolution of health plans over the years and, and to your, your opening comment, this is a collision of, of views and, and principles and values and, and morals in some, some eyes. And just like we have already had uh, in the past, um, whether same-sex marriage would allow coverage within health plans and partners and who's covered and not. I mean, this is probably going to fall into the laps of HR leaders and business leaders, particularly in self-insured plans, as they design what's in the plan and what is out of the plan. And just as we have employers making a, a position of we will pay for you to go and, and get, uh, you know, a legal abortion in another state, should that be necessary, um, someone's going to have to make the decision whether or not the plan will even cover it. Right. Um, that, well, that's that, that's going to land on the table of people listening to the program today. Well, that that's right. And I think, like I said, Dobbs itself, this decision does not prohibit a plan from covering abortion services or requiring them to do so, but there is already a federal law in the books, the Federal Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And that law does require health plans to cover abortion services in a very limited case. And that case is where carrying a fetus to term would endanger the life of the mother or where medical complications have arisen from an abortion. And so there is right. a law on the books already uh, that, that, you know, a federal law that does require healthcare plans to cover abortion in those limited uh, circumstances. Another question, Phil, that we're getting is how does Dobbs, Dobbs affect plans where an employer buys a health insurance policy and the health insurer pays claims under the plan? Uh, for example, for fully insured plan. And this one's really going to depend on state laws. The insurance policy is governed by state law itself, specifically the insurance laws of the state in which the policy was issued. And like we've said before, states can set their own requirements for uh, insurance policies to cover or not cover abortion services and medications. Insured health plans will be required to comply with the applicable state insurance laws. So we've got a little bit of a tension there between the federal law and what the state, uh, what the states may do in their respective states. But I do think that federal law, the Federal Pregnancy Discrimination Act, certainly it's going to preempt state law in the area where carrying a fetus to term would endanger the life of the mother. And I do believe that uh, because of what's called federal law preemption, uh, no matter what states do, uh, states or health insurance plans will have to provide coverage under that limited, at least that limited circumstance. Yeah. And, and when I, I think of this, uh, I'm going to bring up a topic that was discussed on uh, AM radio yesterday. Um, it's not, it's not my brain thrust. I, I wasn't wise enough to think of this, but I know it's going to come up and it's something to consider as we're making these decisions and, and, and making proclamations early in this process of what we will and will not do until we, we kind of sort out some of the, the confusion here. And that is if you had a, 
if you have, um, let's just use the city of St. Louis and, you know, where you cross the river, literally you can, you know, travel a mile or two from your home and you can be in another state where it might be legal in Illinois and maybe illegal in Missouri, for an example. Um, and employers saying, well, we will pay for you to travel to another state to um, get an abortion. Well, that travel distance may not be very far. Right. It might just literally be a matter of a few miles uh, to another city where you might be able to find a clinic and 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 have an abortion. Will you also pay for those uh, employees that work in the same place within the same business to travel an equal distance or a further distance um, if they wanted to seek advice on adoption? Um, and in the same thing, and that may or may not be covered within the healthcare plan uh, as well. And I think it, it starts to get into this equity and fairness of the, the use of benefits or the application of benefits. And when is one right and the other wrong, or we will or we won't. And it's really going to position employers in a tough spot on things like this. Yeah, very, very true. And and what's it, it's really interesting. Obviously, I I just mentioned what uh, what what kind of what I expect to see come down the pike with respect to fully insured plans. Uh, a lot of businesses have self-funded plans, and those self-funded health plans are subject to ERISA. And those self-funded plans can decide whether and how to cover abortion services and med- medications, regardless of state law. Uh, subject to the requirements of that Federal uh, Pregnancy Discrimination Act that I just mentioned. So state laws that relate to benefit plans are really broadly preempted by ERISA. Now, ERISA does not preempt any generally applicable state criminal statute. So it's unclear at this point whether states would pursue criminal actions relating to aiding and abetting abortions in states where the procedure is prohibited or whether uh, such laws would be preempted by ERISA. Very difficult questions that are lingering out there, kind of like the question you just posed, Phil, on you know, will, will insurance companies have to cover uh, people who want pregnancy-related services other than abortion uh, when the health insurance plans are covering certain uh, costs, expenses, et cetera, on uh, things related to abortion. So again, very difficult issues here. And that does kind of bring up that, that other question. I just mentioned, I threw out a new phrase, uh, a, another law phrase, aiding and abetting. And uh, you know that's, that's really a, a, an interesting question here, this aiding and abetting. It's not clear right now whether employers that reimburse travel expenses for abortions could be held liable for, quote, aiding and abetting, end quote, violations under certain state, states' laws. Uh, certain states' laws, such as the fetal heartbeat laws in Texas and Oklahoma, permit private parties rather than the state, think about this, permit private parties rather than the state to bring a civil claim against somebody who aids and abets, including by reimbursing costs, uh, that aids and abets someone in obtaining an abortion that violates those states' laws. Mm. So there's speculation that these claims may be brought against employers with plans that cover abortion services or that reimburse employee travel expenses for out-of-state abortions. 
Obviously, the courts will ultimately decide whether state criminal and civil laws can be applied to reimbursements where an abortion takes place in another state. But in the meantime, employers really uh, who are evaluating the risk should consider the specific state laws involved, the relevant terms of their plan documents and liability insurance they may have in place, such as directors and officers indemnification insurance and ERISA fiduciary liability coverage. Yeah. So, so uh, complicated issues, very complicated stuff. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, stay tuned. Well, I'm sure we're going to have more discussion on this as the water gets more murky or clear. We'll see where it goes from here. Bert, let's move on to microaggressions. Today's uh, today's topic uh, for the program. Um, we just did not want to ignore, you know, the headline news. When we when we consider you know microaggressions, let's first just invite people to participate in the chat. Uh, this is also a very sensitive uh, topic, and that gets to our poll question today. Do you feel that people are overly sensitive today? It's real simple, yes or no. Have you added the term microaggression to your harassment and discrimination policies? Uh, we'd like to get some insight on that. Um, for microaggressions, they're very interesting. And, and I have this up here behind me and basically says, uh, no, where are you really from, right? It's, it's a great thing. Now, I, I picked that because I've lived out of the country before. And obviously when that happens, people recognize you have an accent um, and it's very clear you're not from there with your accent. Um, and people, you know, right away will either hear, are you Canadian or are you American, right? Or where are you from? Um, and, and they're just trying to place that. And in no way did I ever feel there was any um, aggression towards me or microaggression in any way for asking that question, because it was obvious my accent didn't match the country I was in. Yep. Um, now, we have the same thing happen with someone who has, you know, a Southern accent. We say, where are you from? Right. And, and they have a Southern draw or twang, as we might refer to it. And that might be an aggression. Again, if it is, I'm sorry, we're just trying to take that. But there is there is this scenario that people in general feel people are overly sensitive. But in the workplace, we have to be sensitive to the scenarios that are real. Um, and let's talk about it first from a policy standpoint. Yeah, I, I, I had a friend uh, back in college. He he was actually from Italy, and uh, people would always ask him, "Where'd you where'd you get where's your accent from?" And he would always say, "My accent's from America." Because, because <laughs> where great he's from, yeah, it was a great answer because where he was from, he had no accent. He didn't have yeah. an accent until he got to America. So he would always kind of kind of give a joking response to it. And let me let me first start out by by giving sort of a, a definition of what a microaggression is. And then I'm going to boil it down and make it really, really simple for people. So I'll give the the, the complicated legal version first. And Basically, microaggressions have been uh, defined as brief and commonplace daily verbal behavioral, behavioral or environmental indignities, intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults toward any group, particularly the culturally marginalized or a racial my, uh, minority. Microaggressions are often subtle in nature and can be manifested in the verbal, 
nonverbal, visual, or behavioral realms. They are often enacted, or, or uh, uh, yeah, often enacted automatically and unconsciously. Okay, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. When I you was said you're going to boil it down, yeah. boil gonna, it down for us. I'm going to make it really simple. When I was growing up, and this will this this is a this in and of itself will be a microaggression. Way several, back in the day, right? Several different ways. When I was growing up, and we, we you know microaggressions were referred to by a different word, and that was disrespect, or somebody was dissing you. And again, yeah. using the term dissing can be a microaggression because it implicates. You know, uh, first of all, my age, uh, it may also implicate uh, a racial minority, but I'm going to use the term anyway. When you were dissing somebody, you were disrespecting somebody. And that's really what a microaggression is. All that language that I just gave you, uh, it's a really fancy way of saying disrespecting somebody. Yeah. And uh, that that's really a, the, the easy way to boil it down uh, is, is that you know, we can try one area we can try to improve, no matter whether you think people are uh, sort of progressive in nature uh, and, and always trying to seek progress, whatever that may or may not mean, or you take the view that people are way too over the top politically correct. One area that we can all probably try to improve in is be aware of our uh, disrespect uh, and, and trying to, uh, not disrespect people, whether it's intentional or not. I think if we can show a little bit more courtesy, uh, to one another, uh, we'll go a long way toward ending, you know, kind of putting, you know, taking an effort or a step toward, uh, making things a little bit easier on other people. Just I like you know, on show. our chat line here, uh, our friend Dave, uh, who we like to banter with, um, he's like, our microaggressions need a micro definition. Um, I gave it, I gave it to just you, gave Dave, to it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's disrespect. How about that? <laughs> so, so let's talk about from a policy standpoint, or um, should it or should it not be called out in our policy? Yeah, I think uh, from a policy standpoint, employers already have policies in place uh, I, I definitely do not recommend that an employer adopt some sort of new policy, uh, policy prohibiting microaggression in the workplace. Uh, I think that policies are already in place, uh, talking about having a culture of respect and dignity, anti-harassment, uh, anti-discrimination, anti-bullying. And it's just, again, making sure that those policies are in, interpreted and enforced in a manner that's respectful to to the workplace. And okay. I sent Nick some uh, so, some uh, terms that I'm going to ask him to put up on the screen here. And a lot of people, you know, this Phil, the first one is uh, just like your question that's behind you. You know, what are you or where are you from? You know, that's it, it's it's a very similar question. And some of these things that you see on the screen here. Uh, are considered to be microaggressions. And what's hard for a lot of people, especially uh, people like, like you, Phil, and like me, who are not in a, in a cultural minority, is what seems to have changed is, is that uh, a lot of the things that, that we would not, we're not intending to disrespect somebody, but it's how it's being received. And one of my colleagues, Luther Wright, who's in uh, my, my Memphis, Tennessee office, who's African-American, 
Luther uh, said something very interesting on a program that I was on with him the other day. And he said, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us try to follow what's called the golden rule do unto others as you would uh, do unto them. Yeah, exactly. So basically treat people like you want to be treated. And Luther uh, introduced me to a concept called the platinum rule. (laughs) And uh, the platinum rule is, is don't treat people how, how you want them to treat you treat people how how they want to be treated. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of a different mindset. So like I said, Luther's black and, you know, I, it, it really did not occur to me. One of the things that he said is that a microaggression is when people say, I don't see color, I just see people. And that gets difficult for people of, of your and, and my uh, racial background, Phil, because uh, you know, we we grew up in a time uh, just in the post Martin Luther King era, where Martin Luther King was out there and made a statement. I'm going to butcher his quote, but it's one of my favorite quotes. Be and careful! That is, I'm just okay. going to put a disclaimer. He yeah. he made he he's, he's trying to make a good statement here. Yes. Don't no, butcher it too he, bad. Go ahead. He 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 made he made a great statement, and that is, let's hope we can reach a point in society where people are judged by the content of their character instead of the color of their skin. And right. to me, that's a different way of saying, I don't see color, I just see people. And that's where that's the era we grew up in. We, we grew up in an era where, uh, you know, we're, we, we, that the race shouldn't be important, but, but we're now in an era where uh, a lot of Blacks in America, they, they see that as being disrespectful. If you say that you don't see their color, because if you don't see their color, you don't see their experience that they've had in America. And I'm not going to get into the debate on, on you know, the experience of, of Black people in America. I'm not qualified to, 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 to wade into that on this program. But just understand that from, from the perspective of a Black individual, a statement like that may be deemed offensive, even yeah. though, even though, you know, 50 years or seven, what, 40 60 years ago, you had Martin Luther King essentially saying the same thing, that that's what we should strive to get to in society, is that we don't judge people by their, their color. We, we judge, it by, judge them by the content of their character. So let's take a look at our poll here real quick, um, Bert, and I agree 100% with you. Nick, give us a quick update here. Yeah, I don't have it nice and pretty on your screen yet, but um, as far as have you added the term microaggression to your harassment and discrimination policies, that lighter blue is new. Uh, so resoundingly no, and I'll get well, back to you just a second on the other poll question. All right, well, I'm just going to point out your microaggression, Nick, coming from an a unfriendly, ugly man. You can't just say nice and pretty today, all right? Come on, Nick. Now, let's well, let's be a little bit sensitive and aware of the words that we're using. Um, Ashley does have an interesting statement here um, that you know should be a third choice uh, for the question. Uh, I think people are overly sensitive on certain things, but when it comes to certain topics, I think sensitivity, outrage, and frustrations are totally justified. Very so, so, uh, so, interesting yeah, let, statement. Yeah. Let, let's for, stop on that statement for a second, Ashley, and thanks for your comment there. And I think where we are in society today is is your your question really does kind of kind of or, or your comment really does kind of bear this out. Uh, you say on one hand there there should be a third choice. You think that people are overly sensitive on certain things, 
But then you say, on the other hand, when it comes to certain topics, the sensitivity and outrage and frustrations are totally justified. And what that does is it gets us to the point, who decides which topic is justified for the outrage and which topics are not justified for the outrage? And, you know, that's that's where we are in society. That's where we we are these days where there's really been a, a breakdown here because uh, you know, people are are making those decisions on when the outrage is justified and when it's not justified. And your version of what may be justified may be very different than my version of where, of of what's justifiable. And you know, everything, like I said, we've said it so many times on the program, Bill. You said amazingly, we're on episode 186 of our morning briefing here, and we've said it so many times that everything these days has really turned political and uh the discourse in the country uh is is really i i think at a boiling point and you know on the topic of microaggressions or frankly i'll i prefer my term i like the term disrespect i think if we can dial back the disrespect for people and try to understand you don't have to agree with it but try to understand the other side of things it will go a long way toward creating a better environment. And the the one th other thing I'll add on this is, is that one of the things I love about being a lawyer, truly, truly love about being a lawyer, uh, and, and our ethical rules actually require us to do this. They require us to be a zealous advocate of our clients' positions. Whether we agree with those positions or not, we are, we are bound to zealously advocate for our clients' positions. Now, obviously, if a client's committing something uh, something illegal, uh, we 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 can't go down that road. There's ethical considerations that that help us there as lawyers. But zealous advocates, no matter what their position is, and what that does is it forces me as a lawyer sometimes to argue things that I don't agree with. But what it, it what it does though is it makes me understand very in very great detail what the other side's argument is and if we boil this all back to the abortion argument i could make a very persuasive argument on both sides of the issue very persuasive it would and no matter what side i took it's going to probably offend half the audience on the program but the point being is that i can make a very persuasive argument on both sides of that issue and in doing so, it's helped me understand the nuances of the issue. It's helped me understand both sides' position of the issue. And through understanding both sides' positions on the issue, it's hopeful that we can come up with compromise at some point. Yeah. And I think that's what's been lost in this country is the idea of compromise. Uh, people who don't get their way seem to turn into uh, you know, first it's petulance and then it's violence. And that's not good on either side of the issue. No, it's not. But if you are dealing with microaggressions, you would like to um, bring more sensitivity to your workplace. Uh, AIM does have programs uh, as part of our public uh, training programs and our private training programs uh, to help you be aware of that. They're um, on our website. If you look under unconscious biases, You'll find that uh, they're great programs. They really do help bring this uh, issue to light and, and make some real sense out of it. Um, Bert, we are just over our time allotment. I have so many questions and comments in, in the chat to get to. 
Um, we may have to bring some of this back up. I have a very interesting question I'd like to pose to you on an upcoming episode related to this. Let's, but let's hit it next we week, Phil. To, until we get to that point, uh, I wish you and all of our listeners the very best and safe, happy 4th of July. And we'll see everyone back here next week at 730 Central, Stand- Central Time. Central Time. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Tell your story, promote your products, communicate with your employees and customers vividly, dynamically, and powerfully. Whether it's a company video, recruitment video, online training, or live meeting, Feature Group can help you from scripting to highly polished finished production. Whether it's live or on demand, we have the skills and equipment to wow your audience and drive your message home. Feature Group USA the one-stop shop for all your broadcasting needs.